Now, who's reading from the NIV version here this morning? Anybody got an NIV Bible? I'll just preface by saying this particular passage, there are a lot of early uh, Bible translators who were unsure as to whether this, this story should actually be included in the New Testament. So in some versions of the Bible, you'll actually find it italicized. Some versions will have it in brackets. Some versions will have a little footnote next to it saying that they're not 100% sure whether it should have been included or it shouldn't have been. Um, the reason it was included is because, A, the story did happen. Some ancient manuscripts have it in different places, not in John chapter 8. But A, historians are confident the situation happened. And B, it reflects the heart of the Father as reflected elsewhere in Scripture. There's nothing about this story that would make us go, this is not talking about the same God the rest of the Bible is talking about. So I just want to preface that because if you go and tell someone, oh, this is what the preacher talked about today, and they want to say to you, well, that's not really in the Bible. It is actually in the Bible. Even in the NIV, it's italicized, but it's still in the Bible. Okay? So this story actually happened. It's important to remember that when we read the Bible. We're reading about actual people. The people that we're reading about here, I, I've done a bit of traveling and, and, and been overseas to different countries and we used to do uh, missions work and things. One thing I've, I've observed, and I'm sure anyone that has traveled anywhere in the world would have observed, people are people no matter where you go. Is that right? People have feelings. People have emotions. People have high days. People have low days. People think about the welfare of their children. doesn't matter whether you're rich in an affluent country or whether you're living in a slum in central India, a father still goes to bed each night thinking about the welfare of his children. He still thinks about providing for his wife. There are things that are common to all of humanity. It doesn't matter where we go. And in the time of Jesus and in the time of the Bible, when we read, sometimes we just read these characters almost like cardboard cutouts that just go through motions. But we've got to realise that there are human emotions within the framework of every story that the Bible talks about. And I could imagine that this particular story would carry a heightened sense of emotion about it. Here we have a woman, the Bible says, that's caught in the act of adultery. Who's ever been caught red-handed doing something? This isn't. This situation is not a, we're pretty confident you did this, or we've got some good bits of information, enough information to take you to court, to trial you, to see if you... No, no, we know that this happened because we were standing there and we saw it when it happened. Who's ever been caught like that, red-handed, doing something? You don't have to tell me about it. I'm not going to have a confessional time here right now. But being a father and having children, I have the liberty of sharing some of their stories. Sorry, Jordan. I remember, and you would remember this too, son, many years ago. This is just one example. we just moved back from India. And we were living in uh, with some friends over uh, near the canals in in, uh, in Central Ballina there, Temple Street. And I remember one night, because we couldn't find a place to live in here in Ballina, we uh, were sleeping around a pool table. They had a big pool table and we had uh, three of our children at that stage. Chloe wasn't born yet. So we had the three boys on mattresses around this pool table. And what we would do at night, we would we stayed there for about six weeks. We would kiss them goodnight, close the door, and as parents do, don't get out of bed, go to sleep, da Yes, Mum, yes, Dad, no worries, we'd close the door. And then we would walk out, and the way the house was shaped, we sort of walked to almost the opposite corner of the house for the rest of living. So the kids could have been doing whatever they wanted. And we found out on one particular night at least, they were doing whatever they wanted. I had to go into the room to get something out of my bag. And I remember walking down the hallway, past the kitchen, turning down the little hallway to the other corner of the room, and I 
Click open the door and pulled it open. And all of a sudden, I just remember seeing Jordan. And there was movement and all of a sudden, frozen. Just literally frozen like that. Perhaps thinking if he doesn't move, maybe Dad won't see me. Standing up, almost in the middle of the room, maybe that... Anyway, caught red-handed. We've had several situations like that. I was thinking the other day too, Geordie, about the night. Me and Jackie, what we used to like to do is is in order to connect at night with the young kids, we would go out the front of the house. When the kids would go to sleep, we'd just go out the front of the house and we'd just sort of pace back and forth around the front of the house and we'd chat and connect and everything like that. And I remember one night we went out and we were walking around past the front of the house, just up and down past the house having a chat, and we decided to go back in and walking down. This particular house had a really long balcony. So here was the road. There's this really long balcony you had to walk around to get to the front door. And I'm walking along the balcony, and all of a sudden as we got to their bedroom window... What they didn't bank on was their bedroom window back right onto the balcony. And I got there and I just had this sense, something's not quite right. So I've turned and looked in and here's Jordan standing in the doorway. It always seems to be Jordan. Jordan standing in the doorway there. And all he heard was this booming voice of God from outside the window. Don't you move. (laughs) Frozen again. There's been a couple of situations where I've caught my children red-handed and I know the emotion they went through and the trauma that followed. So this woman here is caught red-handed. She's caught in the act. There's no denying that she has broken the law. There's no denying she has broken the laws of God. It says, starting in verse 1, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. I love what Jackie was just saying then about the women's meat. There was something about Jesus that made people want to be with him. There was something about the person of Christ that tax gatherers and sinners and prostitutes and dirty irreligious people felt comfortable in his presence. I always find it sad when people that have no relationship with God feel that they don't belong in church or feel that they can't be your friend because they're too dirty. Yet I see in the Bible time and time again Jesus being himself and having his standards and having his moral values and having his relationship with God and not being a person of compromise, yet somehow he managed to attract these type of people. Somehow he created this environment around him where they felt like they should be with him. I should be with Jesus. There's something about Jesus. And here we have the same thing. He's sitting there in the temple and he's teaching and people are gathering. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Jesus isn't stupid. I want you to understand one thing about this story. We could almost forget the existence of the woman. The Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't care about the woman. She was just the carrot being dangled in front of the donkey. She was just the bait. The Bible tells us that they brought her to Jesus in order to trap Jesus, not in order to get justice, not in order to purge the world of sin, not in order to uphold God's standards. They came for one reason only. And that was to trap Jesus. And here's Jesus' dilemma. Here I am. 
with a multitude of people around me that I'm teaching. And I'm teaching about love. And I'm teaching about mercy. And I'm teaching about grace. And I'm teaching about acceptance. And all these things that flow out of the heart of the Father. And along they come and they pop this woman. And Jesus has this dilemma. If I agree with them and say, yes, the law of Moses says she should be stoned, I've just undone everything else I've been preaching about God's grace, about God's mercy, about God's forgiveness. Everything I've done the last couple of years or so in my ministry is gone. I'm putting the law back up on its pedestal, the same pedestal the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious people put it. I'm elevating the law above grace again. But if I don't and say don't stone her, then I'm going to be accused of not having standards, of not upholding the law of Moses, of not upholding the laws of God. And this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to catch him out. The other thing he's aware of too is if he says, yes, stone her, he's actually breaking Roman law because Roman law forbade the Jews to stone other Jews. I know the Bible talks about them wanting to do it, but Roman law forbade the stoning of a Jew by another Jew. So Jesus is caught in this pickle. I've got the law, the Pharisees and the scribes here, the ones that these people I'm preaching to have been listening to for centuries. These are the ones that have pointed them to God. Do I lose face with them? Do I lose face with them? What do I do? But you see, Jesus isn't stupid, and I'm sure that he would have had a couple of questions running around in his mind as well. The obvious one takes two to tango. I've never seen a person or heard of a person committing adultery by themselves. It takes a second party. If you have caught this couple in the act, where's the other person? Where's the other person? I don't think Jesus is stupid. He would have understood that. The second thing he would have thought probably was, how did you catch them in the act? People aren't committing adultery on park benches in Jerusalem. They're not doing that. So what were you doing? Were you hiding under somebody's bed? If so, why were you hiding under somebody's bed, you sicko? Were you peeping through a stone window? If so, peeping Tom, what are you doing? Maybe you were the other party. Or maybe this whole thing's a setup. It doesn't matter how you caught her because you didn't care how she was caught. It doesn't matter what she was doing because you don't really care what she was doing. You just want to trap me and catch me out. Jesus isn't dumb. How many of you know that God knows our heart's intentions even before we know our heart's intentions? Is that right? God knows the intentions of my heart. As a matter of fact, quite often the circumstances and situations of life that I go through are to reveal myself to me, not to God. God already knows who I am. God already knows how I will react under certain pressures. I sometimes have this really, really high view of myself, that I'm this person. And I go through a little bit of pressure and out comes this other me and I'm like, oh, jeez, 
Who's that? And God goes, that's actually you. That's the you I've seen for years. You just haven't seen it. Now that you can see it, let's do something about it. Let's work together. Let's journey together. So Jesus comes to this conclusion and he knows straight away that this is a setup. How many of you know, though, you just can't trick God? It doesn't matter what you try, what angle you come from, you just can't seem to outsmart God. I haven't done it. I haven't ever seen anyone that has done it. I can't find anyone in the Bible that actually did it. I know of people who think they can outsmart God in the short term but realise at the end, guess what? God wins. At the end of the day, God gets his way. I can feel like I can trick my way out of changing. Maybe it's a certain area of my life and I can come up theologically in good arguments and weasel my way out of something and get, you know... A bit like the Pharisees here, oh, oh God, look at this woman. In other words, God, if I can get your attention on something worse than me, maybe you'll focus on them. Look at that bad person there. Well, I know what she does, I live with her. So, but you want to have a go, you want to talk to me, but what about that? Huh? You fix that first, then come back and see me. But you know what? You won't have time. Because I'll be gone. Huh? I love Jesus. I love the way Jesus deals with people. The Bible says that Jesus stoops down. So verse 5, they, they come to him and they say, she's been caught in adultery. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? But they said this testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear he ignored him. It says he stooped down as though he did not. He heard them. He knew what they were going on about. He knew exactly what they were saying. He knew exactly what they were up to. He knew the intentions of their heart and he stoops down. And the Bible says he starts writing on the ground. Now, if you're like me, that's frustrating because it doesn't tell me what he said. God, you want us to understand your words? You want us to know what you've written? You write in the sand and you won't tell us what you wrote. Because it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. What's relevant is the reaction. What's relevant is what happened after that. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her foot. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then all of a sudden, while Jesus is on the ground with his finger, he hears plop, 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 shuffle, 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 shuffle. One by one, the Bible says, from the eldest to the youngest. You've got to imagine this would have been a big mob. There would have been a core group of people that were there that had plotted and schemed, let's trick Jesus up, let's trap him. And then as they got that woman and they began the journey to the temple, walking through the streets, humiliating her, shaming her, the crowd would have got bigger and bigger. Oh, watch this. What's going on? She was caught in adultery. Stoner, yeah, stoner. Oh, pick up their stones. The crowd got bigger and bigger and bigger. There would have been people in that crowd who didn't even know why they were there. They just wanted to chuck a stone. Just wanted to get the pitching arm out and have a throw. The Bible says one by one they left, starting with the eldest. The eldest had the right, according to the law, to be the first to throw the stones. 
So as the eldest person walked away, the next eldest had to go, well, if we're going to start something here, it's on me now. Do I want to do that? Can I do that? I don't think so. And they dropped their stone. All of a sudden, everyone's looking at the third eldest. Do I want to? Can I start this? Am I without sin? Have I got the right before God to cast the first stone? Am I prepared to suffer the consequences as being the man who threw the first stone? And the Bible says one by one they dropped their stones and they walked away. Verse 9, then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. I can't imagine what must have been going through this woman's head. She is doing something that would have been wrong against her own conscience, I'm sure. Being brought up in that society, there was probably something inside of her that that knew adultery is wrong, I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe she felt immense betrayal when the person she was with jumped up and said, you're nicked, called everybody in and they grabbed her. Who knows? I don't know. She would have felt immense and total humiliation as she was paraded through the street and I don't know how long she walked. But the minute they grabbed her, guess what? She thought, my life's over. There was no, let's go to prison for three years on death row and wait for your sentence. I don't know what would be worse, waiting for three years or getting it over and done with straight away. But the minute they caught her, she knew my life's over and they dragged her through the streets. She would have been humiliated ashamed, all dignity taken away from her. She may not have even been clothed, the Bible doesn't tell us. But whether she was clothed or not, her soul was born naked to everybody that day. That would have been a really, really low point of her life. And then she's dragged into the temple where Jesus is teaching his holy place. And she's made to stand not only in front of the mob, but people who are sitting there in the temple. I've got no doubt there there would have been very innocent and pure people there, people there that knew her. There would have been people there that didn't even know her. And all of a sudden, here she is thrust in the middle of this, realising probably very quickly, I'm going to pay an incredible price for this, but I'm not the point. You guys dragging me out here, you actually don't even care about what I did. You don't care about justice. You want to get this guy and you're going to use me. And then all of a sudden, this man starts riding on the ground. And then he stands up and she's standing there going, hey, I'm here. I'm here. This is my life we're talking about, people. This is my life. And one by one, she looks around in amazement as these people with stones ready to kill her start dropping their stones and walk off in the distance. And all of a sudden, here she is standing alone with this guy called Jesus. Standing alone. What an amazing moment. And you know what? She would have been smart enough to realise the one who didn't walk away was the one without sin. The one that was qualified to throw the first stone was the one that was left standing. I wonder at this point whether she even made the connection. With all this stuff going on, all the emotions, all the mental stuff, would she have even at that point gone, I'm free now? Or would she have looked at them and gone, and then looked at him and gone, 
I don't know. I only know the story as the Bible tells us. And in verse 10, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? That word accusers that Jesus used there is the exact same word that the Pharisees and the Jewish teachers used to describe the devil. Same word they used in their teachings when they spoke about Satan himself. And Jesus lines these men up, these religious leaders, on the same level as the devil. He says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. No one, Lord. Not no one, Jesus. Not no one, man. Not no one, eh? No one, Lord. And Jesus turns and he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know, God is not blind to our sin. Did you know God is not blind to your sin? You know, God knows all the stuff you do that is wrong. He even knows the stuff you do that is wrong that you don't know you do. And he even knows the stuff you do that's wrong that you don't think he knows you do. But he does. All these religious leaders come along with this woman. What's happened to this woman? She has been caught. She's guilty. She's done the wrong thing. Jesus at no point excuses her adultery. At no point does he go, look, it doesn't matter. Look, it's, it's just, a, just adultery. It's a one-off. I know you are tricked into it. At no point does Jesus excuse what she has actually done. There's a big difference between the sinner and the sin. Amen? There's a big difference between, between making a judgment on a person and making a judgment on an activity. Adultery is wrong. I don't care who does it, what the reasons are or the circumstances. I have compassion for reasons and circumstances, but adultery is wrong. The action is wrong. The Bible says not that we're not to judge, but the Bible says we are to make righteous judgments. Amen? I can make a righteous judgment on adultery. It's not God's highest. It's wrong. But I'm not going to judge the adulterer. I don't know their life story. I don't know the circumstances. I don't know the place that their heart's in. I don't know what, I don't know all the brokenness issues. I don't know that. So Jesus makes a judgment on the sin of adultery. Yeah, no dramas. At no point does he excuse adultery and say to her it doesn't matter. He upholds that by saying to her, go and sin no more. In other words, change your life. Don't do it again. But you see, her sin was out there for everybody to see. The Bible tells us that when the religious leaders brought her, here's this woman, guilty of sin, caught, deserves to be stoned, Jesus is listening to everything going, yes, 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 can't dispute a single thing that any of you are saying. And he bends down and he writes in the sand. And even though the Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote, I think we can make some fair assumptions based on the fact that when they saw it, it says it pierced their conscience. I reckon Jesus would have bent down in the sand and he might have wrote something like, liar. He might have gone over here and he might have wrote, stealing from the tax box. He might have went over here and he might have wrote, cheat. 
might have gone over here and he might have wrote, false teacher. And when they looked down at that stuff on the ground, they realised, guess what? Jesus has just created a level playing field. We thought that we were bringing along this woman caught in adultery and he now knows about it and now he needs to deal with it harshly and uphold the law. And Jesus goes, you know what, before you even got here, I caught all of you. I knew exactly what you were doing. And all of a sudden they stand there before Jesus and he says to them, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And they get the revelation, oh my goodness, before God, it's a level playing field. Before God, it's a completely level playing field. None of us are better. None of us are worse. None of us are more holy and less holy because of our lifestyle or because of our performance. None of us have more tickets and chances with God because we're just that much better. Maybe some of these guys didn't even realise that they were struggling or that those they had that in, in their life until they looked down and they saw the finger writing of Jesus and their conscience was pierced and they went, oh wow, I've, I've never seen that about myself. There's stuff about me that I don't yet know. There's stuff about you that you don't yet know. In God's time and in God's way, God will reveal that stuff to us. God will show us that stuff. But in the meantime, I need to understand that I'm on a level playing field with everybody. I don't dare pick up stones and look to the left and look to the right and think, well, who will I hit first? You who are without sin, cast the first stone. There's such a small gap between the sinner and the saint. There's such a small gap between the sinner and the saint. It's only for the grace and the mercy and the blood of Jesus. Amen? It's only for the cross. That's it. It's only what Jesus did that gives me the standing I have before the Father. Not who I am, not that I'm a better performer, I'm a better actor, not that my sins weren't paraded for the world. I was watching on TV the other night and um, they rerun uh, Tiger Woods' um, confession when he came out and he had had, had had adultery and relationships with other people. And they reran the interview where he, he apologised and said, oh, I'm sorry and so on. And then the commentators are backing and forthing, oh, he was sincere, I don't think he's sincere, I don't, whatever. You know what? The only difference between him and... The next guy, is it his was on TV. He was dragged through the streets for everybody to see. And the guy sitting next to him had to have Jesus write it in the sand. Some of us have our baggage out there for all the world to see. Some of our baggage gets paraded around by us. It's evident. Some of it gets dragged out there by others. Oh, did you know? Did you know this person? Did you know what they did? Do you know what they said? Can you? I can't. Oh, I'm just telling you so you can pray for them. Just want to clarify that. You know what? Nine times out of ten, no, you're not. You're picking up a stone and you're tossing a stone. Somebody else looks down, looks bad. Usually it makes the person doing the communication look that little bit better, doesn't it? Because I'm not going to tell you that Jackie's doing the same things as me. Because then we both... So I'm going to pick and choose. What sins are worse? 
Usually the sins I don't commit. They're usually the worst ones, the ones I don't struggle with. They're usually the ones that I think are worse. The ones I struggle with, I can have grace and compassion for the world. I'll drop my stones because I can understand if people struggle. That one, no way. How can you struggle with that? Don't you know you've been set free by the blood of Jesus? Don't you know we died on the cross for you? Don't you know you're opening a doorway to the devil? Huh? Drop the stones. We're all on a level playing field here before God. The difference between sinner and saint is very, very small. Some have their baggage on their shoulders for everyone to see. Others keep it locked away in a cupboard. Some, like this woman, find themselves forced into exposure and others have them quietly revealed to them. It doesn't matter how we see it, how it comes to attention. The point is we all have issues. We all have stuff. And there's only one way out of that stuff and that is the grace of God. It's the grace of God. You know, Jesus never told the Pharisees to walk away. Notice that? At no point did Jesus say to them, walk away from me. He who is without sin, cast the first stone. If you can't cast that stone, I want you to leave. What he did was he just put all those religious leaders and the woman on the same playing field. Let me tell you something. Sin is not the issue. It's how you respond to it. What do you do when God confronts you with your sin? What do you do when God shows you an area of your world that perhaps needs a bit of a tweaking? What do you do? Do you pick up a stone and do you focus on somebody else and go, well, God, what about that? Because if I keep looking at how bad you are, it makes me feel better. It'll dull that little voice in the back of my mind and makes my issue not look too bad. I don't really have to deal with that. I don't really have to focus on that, God, because I've got this over here. Every time I feel bad about myself, I look at you and I feel great. Every time I feel like a sinner, I look at you and go, I'm a saint. Excellent. Woo. Can you move in with me? I just want to stare at you all the time. Make me feel good about myself. Or are we smart enough to heed that advice and go, you know what, that's dead right. I'm going to drop my stone because I've got issues too, just like you do. Thanks for showing me. Now I'm just going to walk away. You know, the men who walked away and the men who dragged the woman were the exact same men. One point they had a woman in their hands, next point they had a stone, next point they had nothing. But they were the same person. Nothing changed. They didn't respond. They were given an opportunity to respond. They weren't told to walk away. They chose to walk away. You ever seen the movies where the, 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 the baddies have the good person and their superhero arrives or whatever? And then the baddies go, ooh, and run away. Usually the, the victim that was dragged up runs the opposite direction to get away too, you know? This woman just stood there. She went nowhere. She was offered the same opportunity that the Pharisees and scribes were offered. They chose to walk away. They chose not to respond. This woman turns around and says, Lord. She responded to the grace of God. The grace of God was on offer for the religious leaders as much as it was on offer to her. The difference was not God, was not his heart. The difference is not what God wants to do. The difference is not what God is prepared to do to get your attention. The difference is not the power of God to change you or to change you or to change you. The difference is your response. It's your response to God. When God comes knocking on the door of your heart and says, you know what, we've got a little thing here, let's talk about it. What do you do? 
Do you deflect away? Do you justify why it's okay? Do you try to debate with God? You'll lose the argument. But we do it anyway. I've done it. Well, it's not that bad, God, because get that one. Yeah, that one. Crook. Tell you a couple of things, God. Curl your toenail. Nah, she's a great girl. Do we deflect? Do we just walk away? Do we just say no to God? It's too hard. I don't want to go there. Leave me alone. And we turn and we walk away. And I know many people who've done that. They get to a certain point in their journey with God, a certain part of their life, and God goes, now it's time to deal with this, and they just simply go, too much, too hard, can't do it. Let me tell you something. God never puts his finger on an area of your life. God never convicts you of an area of your life if he's not going to give you the grace and power to walk through it. We are not all the same. We are all different. We are all different bits of furniture. We are all different people, different makeups, different backgrounds. We are all going to die and stand before God in heaven with baggage. Every one of us will have baggage. It'll be stripped bare by the glory of God. But none of us are going to get to a place of perfection. Then God says, now you're ready, I'll take you into my rest. We are all going to end up standing before the gates of heaven with certain bags on our back. Some of us are going to have massive backpacks, two big bags, dragging along like this, sweat off the brow, but we're going to make it. Other of us are going to get there and we're just going to have the change in our pockets and we're lighting free and skipping up going, yes, you know what, the same person's going to let us in or not let us in. And they're not going to look at you and go, you've got too much baggage. Can you stay? Can you deal with that baggage first? Can you leave that baggage somewhere? Because I can't have all that stuff in here. Some of us will be flying up on a broom. Is that what you said? Patrick, do you say that? Please. We need to talk. How do you get away with that? Good <laughs> Are we going to be like this woman? This woman who accepted what she had done. She couldn't get out of it. She had no choice. And she turns and Jesus says, where are your accusers? She says, there's no one here but you, my Lord, my Saviour. The one who sees me in my nakedness. The one who knows my shortcomings. The one who knows my failings. The one who today is offering me grace. And I accept that grace. And I love what Jesus says. When we have that attitude, when we accept the promptings of God, when we accept the fact that we are imperfect, when we accept the offer of grace from God, grace to change. Grace is the power of God. That's what it is. It's the power of God to change. It's the power of God to deal with the issues of my life. It's the power of God to live free. And we talked about freedom last week, the week before. I wasn't here last week. Freedom is not the opportunity for you to do whatever it is that you want. Freedom is the empowerment by God to do what is right. And so many of us don't. We react out of anger and it stops us doing what's right. We react out of frustration. We react out of hurt, bitterness. We react out of all kinds of places. And there are all sorts of things that stop us from doing what's right. Fear, rejection, insecurity. And God comes along by his grace and says, I want to set you free from those things so that next time you're in that situation, instead of insecurity telling you what to do, faith and grace can tell you what to do. That's freedom. That's what it means to be fully human. And that's the grace that God offers to us. Just as he offered to the scribes and the Pharisees, just as he offered to the woman. And he says these beautiful words to the woman. Where are your accusers? They know it, Lord. Where are those who condemn you? They're not here. And he says to her, neither do I condemn you. And go and sin no more. He could have flipped it around. 
He could have said, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. But he didn't. He didn't. God wants us to know that his grace is there. Whatever you are doing, whatever you are going through, whatever's happening inside your world. And I think any of us would be completely naive to think that we know everything about everybody here. We don't. You don't know what I do behind closed doors by myself. I don't know what you do. I don't know what your marriage is like behind. This is just the reality of life. I don't get shocked anymore when we hear, you know, a big preacher or this person, that person, their marriage broke up or this person was, was a, you know, they had this issue, this one was cheating on... T- None of that shocks me anymore because I live with the reality that only God truly knows a person. Only God. Only God truly knows a person and only God truly knows those issues. But I do know this, God tries to deal with them. He tries to lead us to a place where we get the opportunity through grace and faith to change. Whether we accept that opportunity or we don't is really the issue at the end of the day. And whatever it is that you're going through, whatever you finding yourself facing right now, whatever stuff's happening in your world, let me tell you something from God, this is what I believe the Lord wanted to say, is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. None. Don't entertain the thought. Don't allow it to play in your head. Don't allow it to be there. Don't allow it to set up a, a, a building, a nest in your head. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. The Pharisees and the scribes walked according to the flesh and they turned their back on the grace of God and they walked away. And guess what? There's great condemnation. You want to walk that way, you will feel the condemnation of the world. You will feel it. You will carry that dark shadow through life. But God offers us freedom. Jesus offers us freedom. If we walk in the Spirit, if we respond to God, if we allow God to speak to our hearts, if we allow ourselves to respond to his promptings, to his words, if we allow our hearts to respond through faith and accept the grace of God, accept the fact that you are clean and made whole by the blood of Jesus, there's no condemnation for you. God's grace won't take you to a place where he can't sustain you, no matter what the issue may be. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you uh, this morning, Lord. Thank you for uh, a great morning, God. The the worship was fantastic. Uh, Lord, your presence has been here with us. Uh, Father, as we go from this place this morning, Lord, I just pray, God, would you seal in our hearts the words that you have spoken uh, to us, God. Father, would you seal in our hearts, Lord, don't let the cares and the worries of life take it away. Don't let us walk out of here and in half an hour forget anything that you, by your Holy Spirit, may have spoken to our hearts, Lord. God, let us walk away, let us hear your word and let it take root and let it change us, Father. And God, we thank you, Father, for the truth that there is no condemnation for us in Jesus. There's no condemnation. There's freedom, there's life, there's liberty and all those great things that you want to give to us, Father. Lord, I just pray for each of us uh, this week. Father, uh, keep us safe on the roads as we travel home. Give us a fantastic week. God, give us opportunities this week to speak of Jesus to people that do not know. Give us opportunities to be your hands and your feet, God. Give us opportunities to show the grace, the mercy, and the love of God to people who have not yet encountered that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Fantastic. Please don't run off. We like to encourage everyone to hang around, have a tea and a coffee, talk to someone you haven't talked to before. You just might meet your next best friend for life, BFFF or whatever the kids say. Best, best friend, if friend thing, whatever it is. Uh, have a great week. Don't forget the prayer meeting coming up as well. If anyone would like prayer for anything, uh, please feel free to come forward. Me and Jackie would love to pray with you. God bless.